0: One of the most basic axioms of hockey when it comes playoff time is that when your goalie gets hot, if your team has a goalie that's, that's really catching fire, you are almost unstoppable. This was perfectly exemplified last year in the Stanley Cup playoffs with the Los Angeles Kings. Uh, their goalie here, who's aptly named Jonathan Quick, just had a, a truly incredible run through the playoffs last year. And from very early on, you could tell that something special was happening here. He'd made some some really solid saves early on, and then he just got on a roll. He was stopping breakaways. He was pouncing on loose pucks. He was making acrobatic kick saves on rebound shots. He was stealing these, these sure goals, stuff that should have been, without doubt, without question, in the back of the net, a goal for the other team, and he's stopping him. And you can imagine on the one hand, if you're the the opponent, it's totally demoralizing. You're seeing these things and you're like, that should have been a goal and we can't afford in the playoffs to lose a goal like that. But you can imagine that if you're playing for the Kings and your goalie's playing this, every single bounce is going your way. He's getting everything. Nothing's going in the net. You can imagine that they are feeding off of this. It gives the, the forwards and the players uh more energy in their legs. They're skating harder, they're skating faster, because they know that whatever happens, their goal is gonna stop it, so they can push forward and focus on scoring a goal for their own hand. So their their passes are better, their skating's faster, they're peppering the other net with, with uh pucks. The Kings rode Jonathan Quick's hot streak all the way through the playoffs and they won the Stanley Cup and Jonathan Quick became the playoff MVP total confidence in your goalie i mean if you're seeing some of this footage it's incredible what this goalie did the same kind of confidence you see the same kind of confidence with a dominant pitcher in baseball so for those of you who are tigers fans if you have justin verlander on the mound you feel pretty good you're confident that he's going to put together a good game things are going to go well if you've got the wrong guy in the mound say a, a particular closer that might be struggling then you're a nervous wreck. You have no confidence at all. You you think you're just waiting for him to give up that winning run in a close game, and you're going to be toast. But if Verlander can pitch the whole game, you are totally confident. Everything is going to be just fine. This morning, we're going to think through this concept of confidence. Where does confidence really come from? And of course, the the real question, the the root question we're looking at is, what is the ultimate source of confidence? So we're turning to Psalm 115, which is a psalm of trust in God. I invite you to turn there if you haven't already done so. It's found on page 604 of the Pew Bibles, Psalm 115. So Psalm 115 is going to teach us that, that ultimate confidence, if we want to have ultimate confidence, we must turn to God. And of course, that's not a surprising answer. If you're, if you're in a church on a Sunday morning, of course, we're going to say that, that God is the source of ultimate confidence. But we want to look at Psalm 115 to understand why the Psalmist is saying that we can be totally confident in God. He's going to give us two huge reasons why we can trust God and be totally confident in Him. The first huge reason that we can have confidence in God is that He is infinitely superior to all others infinitely superior so here's how the psalm starts verse 1 not to us lord not to us but to your name be the glory because of your love and faithfulness okay so that's the base starting point here it's directing glory to the right place it's saying that whatever else there is all glory belongs to god not to humans but to god God's being, his, his love and his faithfulness mean that God deserves to be put above everything else without exception. There is nothing that deserves more glory than God himself. And already that's a little hint about where confidence must be rooted. If you are rooting your confidence in anything other than God, something human-based or, or perhaps a human, another person, then that is false confidence. Nonetheless, we've got to follow the psalmist's train of thought here. Verse 2, we get something of a challenge, a question to this. Verse 2, why do the nations say, where is their God? In other words, is he really right in verse 1 to say that all glory belongs not to humans, but to God? If you ask the nations surrounding Israel, they might disagree that God is the one who deserves all glory. They might have other alternatives. They might actually ask, well... Where is this great God that you're speaking of? The psalmist gives an immediate answer in verses 3 and 4. Our God is in heaven. He does whatever pleases him. But their idols are silver and gold made by human hands. So if the nations are going to doubt Israel's God, if they're going to doubt Yahweh's greatness and, and ask where God is, we've got a ready answer. God is enthroned in heaven. God is seated on the throne in heaven. He is sovereign over all of the universe. So we get three quick notes here in this, this verse three. First of all, God is described as our God. In other words, this is a God who has a relationship with a particular people. This is Israel's God. Second, God is powerful to do, or God is sovereign. He's seated on his throne. He's able to do whatever he wants. And that's the the third point there. God is powerful to do anything you almost get the sense that the psalmist here is a little bit offended that the nations would even dare to bring up this question where is their god so he starts to kind of ridicule them and in verse three he's talking about our god and in verse four he's talking about their idols and there's a really strong contrast our god verse three is in heaven our god is able to do whatever pleases him their idols Well, the best that can be said about them is they're made out of precious metals, gold and silver. But in truth, they're just down here and they're just made by humans. They're they're nothing. He continues that train of thought here in 5 to 7 to describe what these other nations are are putting their confidence and their trust is. What what describes these other supposed gods, these idols? Verse 5. They have mouths but cannot speak, eyes but cannot see. They have ears but cannot hear, noses but cannot smell. They have hands but cannot feel, feet but cannot walk, nor can they utter a sound with their throats. Now Israel is unique among all the nations of the ancient Near Eastern world during their their time in that they were commanded not to make any physical representation or physical manifestation of Yahweh, their God. All the other nations around them, they believed that a a particular God would inhabit a, a particular idol or a statue or those kind of things. And, of course, these nations knew that these were made by craftsmen. They understood that they were physical objects made by human hands. But they believed that the kind of personality of a god sort of inhabited that kind of thing, that it inhabited the idol or the statue or whatever it was. They actually had rituals to kind of make the statues come alive. In Assyria, one of the surrounding nations, they called this mouth washing where they'd kind of speak into the ears. A priest would speak into the ear and that was supposed to kind of open up the ears and make the idol be able to hear. They would kind of open the eyes so that it could see and kind of speak into the mouth so that it could hear and speak. In Egypt, there was the same kind of idea. They called it opening the mouth and the eyes. After these rituals, the the statue or the idol was believed to be a place where a particular deity could hear and could see and could smell and all these different things. But of course, if you're Israel, this becomes a very easy target for mockery. The psalmist talks about how human these idols, these statues look. They have eyes, they have ears, they have mouths, they have feet. And yet how totally subhuman they really are because they can't see, they can't hear, they can't speak, they can't walk. In fact, the psalmist is saying these statues are totally lifeless. They can do nothing. And this leads to the damning conclusion of verse 8. Those who make them will be like them, and so will all who trust in them. He's saying putting your trust in a lifeless statue will eventually make you lifeless yourself because you've got nothing substantial to put your hope in. You've got no ground for your trust, no source of protection, no source of healing, nothing. You are left with nothing. What the psalmist is doing is expressing the foolishness of the trust, the things that the the nations surrounding Israel put their confidence and trust in. It's a bit like the well known tale by Hans Christian Andersen, the, the tale of the emperor's new clothes. You undoubtedly know something of the story. It starts off with two swindlers who go and find this emperor who has kind of an odd fascination with clothing. And they make him a deal that he can't refuse. They say that they are going to make him the best set of clothing he has ever had, he has ever seen. He's never heard of such fine fabric, such beautiful patterns. They're going to weave it for him and they're going to give it to him. In addition to being such fine fabric, this, this particular set of clothes, this particular fabric that they're going to weave has this great quality where it becomes invisible to those who are either uncommonly stupid or those who are unfit for their position. This sounds great to the emperor, and so he immediately commissions them. The swindlers get their their looms and they start weaving, but of course they don't have any fabric, they don't have any yarn, anything like that. They're just weaving air and making a big show of all this production, using scissors to cut through the air and, and holding up fabric that is not really there. But nonetheless, they're going very busily about their job. Finally, the emperor sends one of his most trusted men to go and find out what's going on here. The man goes in and is shocked to see that he can't see anything, because, of course, there's nothing there. But he believes the story that the fabric is invisible to those who are stupid or those who are unfit for office, and he's not about to be the first one to be exposed as being stupid or unfit for office. So he makes a big deal about how beautiful the fabric is and how how great it's coming along. Another official has the same experience, and both report back to the emperor that this is going to be the best set of clothes yet so the emperor finally comes to inspect himself and he too discovers that he doesn't see anything on the looms he can't see any fabric even though the the weavers are sitting there holding up bolts of fabric and showing him the the fine patterns and everything and showing him the cut of the the coat and the pants and everything he discovers that he can't see anything and this is alarming because it means that he's either very stupid or he's unfit for being emperor But if you are emperor, you of course can't admit that you are too stupid or unfit for your office. So he plays along with all the rest. So when the time comes for him to finally proudly display his new set of clothes, he parades in front of his people to great applause because everyone in the city has heard about this fabric and only those who are stupid or unfit for their office cannot see the fabric. So everything is going well, a great reception for the best set of clothes yet. Until a child sees the emperor and says, but he hasn't got anything on. And then the whole crowd realizes that the child is right. The emperor is wearing no clothes. That's what the psalmist is doing. He's saying, look at these things that you are putting your confidence in. It's a little statue It can't do anything. You are putting your hope and your trust in this. You are calling it a God. You're pretending that this contains some sort of great deity, but just look at them. Any child could tell you, that's just an empty statue. It can do nothing. So what's the alternative? The psalmist then turns to God's people. Verse 9. All you Israelites, trust in the Lord. He is their help and shield. House of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and shield. You who fear him, trust in the Lord. He is their help and shield. So he's saying, Your God is the true God. Israel, your God, Yahweh, is the one who is living and active. He's the one who's enthroned in heaven. He's the God who has power to do whatever He pleases. This is the living, true active God, not some little statue that can do nothing except collect dust. So turn to your God, understand who Yahweh is and put all of your trust in Him. Don't look for confidence to the kind of thing that can be made at craft time or craft hour. Instead, understand that God is your help, God is your shield, He is the true God. Isn't that better than some little statue that you can put up on your mantle? that you have to kind of dust every now and then? What Israel needs to understand is this first huge reason for confidence. God is infinitely superior to anything else. That's where confidence is rooted, is understanding that. Understanding that God is infinitely above anything else. Now, I doubt that any of us are tempted to go buy a little statue and pretend that there's a God in there and start worshiping it and putting our confidence there. But the root temptation here is putting your confidence and putting your trust in anything other than God. Putting your confidence and trust in an empty source. And that temptation remains strong today. Think about your own life. You're in church. You know that you're supposed to say that your confidence and your trust is in God. I understand that. But if you really look at where your hope is, where your your confidence, your trust really lies, where is it? What is it that makes you feel secure? More pointedly, what are the things that you are tempted to trust and put your confidence in instead of God? For some of us, this will be financial security. This is one of the most foolish things that I believe, that if I can just kind of come up with a savings account, then then everything will be okay. Okay? but if we think about it that's as ridiculous as putting your trust in a a little idol a little gold statue i mean we can we can pretend that that we can do well right we can we can kind of try to save up all our money live frugally maybe have a little stack of cash under a pillow or or maybe have a savings account or retirement account or stocks and bonds or gold bars or whatever it is that you think is going to make you secure but you can lose it all immediately Recession has taught that lesson to many people very quickly. But maybe for you, your confidence isn't in in money or some kind of financial stability. Maybe your confidence is just in yourself, in your own ingenuity. You believe that you are strong, you're resilient. No matter what happens, you are going to find a way to survive. You're going to find a way to pull through. Those who feel the responsibility of providing for a family are, I think, particularly susceptible to this and then the time comes when you find that your ability to provide is limited and it is a crushing defeat but maybe that's not where your confidence lies in fact maybe you don't have any confidence at all maybe you put on a, a show of a, of a brave face or maybe you've even stopped doing that but you're a shaking leaf if someone asks you are you confident or what is your source of confidence you've got nothing to show I mean, your whole life is lived in fear. You've got nothing. Fear of failure, fear of being exposed, fear of being hurt, fear of loss, fear of being broken. What we need to know when we find ourselves putting our confidence, putting our hope, putting our trust in anything that's, that's human based, anything that is sub God rather than God Himself, we need to know that God is on His throne. If we are to have confidence, we must understand that God is infinitely superior to anything else. That's the starting point for the psalmist. The first huge reason we can have confidence in God It's because of who God is. God is infinitely superior to anything else. We turn then to the second huge reason we can have confidence in God, and that is that God acts for his people. Look at verses 12 and 13. The Lord remembers us and will bless us. He will bless his people, Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless those who fear the Lord, small and great alike. So not only is God powerful over all creation, not only is he infinitely superior to everything else, but he acts for his people. God is for his people. He's on the side of his people, Israel. God remembers His people. God will bless His people. God is for great and small alike. It doesn't matter who you are. If you are God's child, He is for you and He acts on your behalf. The psalmist then turns us around to use it as a word of blessing. He's turning to God's people, Israel, and says in verse 14, May the Lord cause you to flourish, both you and your children. May you be blessed by the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. So in light of all this, in light of God's infinite superiority and the fact that God is for us, the psalmist calls for God's blessing on God's people. And then he closes out the psalm with a reminder of who God is and what our response should be. Look at verse 16 through 18, the end, of the, the end of the psalm. The highest heavens belong to the Lord, but the earth he has given to mankind. It's not the dead who praise the Lord, those who go down to the place of silence. It is we who extol the Lord, both now and forevermore. Praise the Lord. Again, the point is that God is enthroned in heaven. He is the all-powerful God over the whole cosmos, all of creation, all of the universe. God is on his throne. He rules from heaven and he appoints humans to be his ministers on earth verse 17, this idea about the, the dead not being the ones who praise the Lord might seem a little bit odd, but but what the psalmist is doing there is reminding us that we have the opportunity now as the living to praise God. It's not the dead who praise God. It is we, now the living, who will bless God, who will praise his name now and forever. While we have life, we bless God's name. So the psalmist is saying in the second part that, that God acts for his people. And it's really the second reason for confidence in God that makes the difference for us. If God were simply, infinitely above everything else, but not for us, it wouldn't do us any good. Think about it this way. Another one of the free church pastors from northern Michigan used to, do, to work with the Navy, uh, specifically on submarines, and more specifically on, on working with missiles on submarines, and, and he was telling us some of the, the capabilities that the United States uh, Navy has. Apparently, from a submarine underwater, we can shoot a rocket up. It'll break the surface of the water and send missiles up into the atmosphere and be able to hit a target 4,000 miles away, the size of, to the accuracy, the size of a small table. So, in terms of of our location here, there could be, and we don't have, we only have submarines in in the oceans, I understand, but there could be a submarine out in Lake Michigan. You could be sitting there at Stearns Park and and never see it, underwater, and it could send a missile up from underwater that would hit the tree fort back in Alaska that I built behind my parents' home and destroy it 4,000 miles away. Pinpoint accuracy. Not only that, but that same rocket coming up can send multiple missiles to multiple locations with that same pinpoint accuracy 4,000 miles away. Now, when I heard that, I thought that was really, really incredible. I was amazed that we could do that. I mean, 4,000 miles is a long, long way. And the fact that you're doing it from underwater, that is truly amazing. But you can imagine this kind of military capability might not be good news for, say, North Korea. It might be awe-inspiring, but it's probably not going to produce any joy. God's great power by itself is not necessarily good news for us. It's definitely awe-inspiring, but it's not necessarily joy-producing. So this second step really is a crucial move. When coupled with a recognition that God acts for God's people, His great infinite power really is good news. So Psalm 115 becomes a great word of hope for Israel. Whatever their situation is, as they use this psalm in their corporate worship as a, as a people, this is a song that gives them confidence because they understand that not only is God infinitely superior to everything else, but God acts for his people. Now, not many of us are ethnically Jewish. Not many of us can trace our ancestry back to Abraham. And so for us, for this to be a, a good news message for us there's a crucial step that has to be taken this is good news for those who are god's people in psalm 115 in the context of psalm 115 that means the people of israel abraham's descendants for us who are non-jewish westerners a crucial step has to be made somehow we must be incorporated into god's people if psalm 115 is going to be good news for us This step is nowhere articulated more clearly than in Ephesians chapter 2. Paul starts off by reminding those of us who are not Jews what our starting point is. He says, Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. In other words, Psalm one fifteen does not apply to you. You are excluded from citizenship in Israel. You are foreigners to the covenants of the promise, the kind of promise that grounds psalm one fifteen You are without hope, you are without God in the world here 's the crucial step ephesians two thirteen But now, in Christ, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. That's the crucial step. For he himself, Christ himself, is our peace, who made the two groups one and who has destroyed the barrier by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two thus making peace and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who are far away and peace to those who are near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Here's the good news. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. See, God's plan from the very beginning was to rescue the world, starting with Abraham and starting with Abraham's descendants. Now, in Jesus, God's plan has moved past ethnic Israel, past the Jewish people themselves to include the whole world. The scope of God's salvation is not one particular people now. It is one group made of the whole world through Jesus. That means that not only is God infinitely superior to all others, as we learn in Psalm 115, not only is he for his people, as we learned here, but he invites all of us to be his people. This is an invitation to all of us. Psalm 115 is good news because it is good news offered to everyone. If you want to have true confidence, the kind of confidence that can withstand any of life's storms, you must put your trust in this God through his son Jesus. In Christ, God offers you the opportunity to be his own child, to be a member of his household, to experience the blessing of Psalm 115. Let's be clear on this. What we are being offered is not some kind of meaningless connection to a lifeless statue like the surrounding ancient Near Eastern world might offer. Nor, as our culture might offer, are we offered a share in some kind of precarious source of confidence, human-based. What we are being offered is a true relationship with the living God who is enthroned in heaven, the God who is sovereign over all of the universe, the God who is powerful to do all that he pleases. So what we learn about confidence, true confidence, lasting, substantial confidence, is that it is rooted in God himself and it is offered freely as a gift to all who will become his people. True, unshakable confidence can only be found in relationship to God, with a living God, and that relationship is possible through his son, Jesus. By dying on the cross, Jesus was reconciling people to God. That was, ha- that was what was happening theologically. Jesus was opening the door to all people to have a reconciled relationship to God. Those who are without hope, those who are without God, excluded from all God's promises, are now, through Jesus, through his reconciliation, made God's own people. That's what makes it possible for us to have this living relationship with a living God. On Father's Day, this is an important reminder, because whatever good and bad things our culture tells us about the need for fathers to provide for their families, the most important thing that fathers can do is to point their families to the only substantial true source of confidence and hope. See, when we talk about the importance of fathers, sometimes the underlying message there, and this is the wrong one, is that you are the rock for your family. If that is the truth, then you will fail. It is good that we recognize how important fathers are in families, but we must recognize that what your children need, if you are a father, what your children need is not you to be their rock. You can never live up to being their source of confidence. What your children need is for you to point them to God who is the only source of true, unshakable confidence. And that, of course, not only gives hope to those of us who are very imperfect fathers, but it also reminds us that those of us who have grown up with imperfect fathers have the grace of God that is more powerful than that situation growing up. If you have struggled to trust, if you have struggled with confidence because of things in your background, you are offered the opportunity to have true, substantial hope, true, substantial confidence. If you are to have this real, actual confidence, unshakable confidence, you must find it in God. Psalm 115 is a message for us. God is infinitely above everything else. And God is for His people, and God in Christ invites you to be His child. As we begin to respond to this psalm together, I want us to read it together responsively. So if you would stand and and join me, we will read Psalm 115 together as a reminder of where true confidence comes from. I I invite you to read the the bold portions here. They're labeled all, and then I will lead with the other sections. Please say Psalm 115 with me. Not to us, Lord, not to us, but to your name be the glory because of your love and faithfulness. Why did the nations say, where is their God? Our God is in heaven. He does whatever pleases him. But their idols are silver and gold, made by human hands. They have mouths but cannot speak, eyes but cannot see. They have ears but cannot hear, noses but cannot smell. They have hands but cannot feel, feet but cannot walk. Nor can they utter a sound with their throats. Those who make them will be like them, and so will all who trust in them. All you Israelites, trust in the Lord. He is their help and shield. House of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and shield. You who fear him, trust in the Lord. He is their help and shield. The Lord remembers us and will bless us. He will bless his people Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless those who fear the Lord, small and great alike. May the Lord cause you to flourish, both you and your children. May you be blessed by the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. The highest heavens belong to the Lord, but the earth he has given to mankind. It is not the dead who praise the Lord, those who go down to the place of silence. It is we who extol the Lord, both now and forevermore. Praise the Lord. Please pray with me. Our great God, we thank you for the reminder that you are the source of sure, unbreaking hope. Father, I pray that you would stir our hearts by your Holy Spirit to throw off any other source of false hope, any of those things that's going to fail us and leave us empty and it said, turn our hearts to you, the only source of sure confidence and sure trust. We thank you for your Son, through whom we have gained access with your people to your incredible promises. It is in his name we pray. Amen. Receive the blessing from Psalm 115. May the Lord cause you to flourish, both you and your children. May you be blessed by the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Praise the Lord. Go in peace.